I am your host, Dr. Saran Nataki. Welcome to Power 365, Phenomenal Woman Wednesday. This podcast will address topics ranging from what is a phenomenal woman? Are you enough? Community service, paying it forward, the manifestation of dreams through words and action, the power in being a woman, fashion, and much more. Stay tuned. Phenomenal. Phenomenal woman. It's Phenomenal Woman Wednesday. Thank you for tuning in. Today I bring you a very different guest. I sit down to have a conversation with Dr. Jesse Baker. Dr. Jesse Baker is a white male whose life work is focused upon equality and social change. Uh, Given everything that's happening politically as well as socially, uh, with social justice issues, I thought it'd be fitting to sit down with Dr. Baker. In this first episode, we discuss his position on white privilege, how he attained a doctorate without ever attaining a high school diploma, and even my own experience with real estate redlining. Let's jump into this first of a three-part series. All right, so welcome to this special edition of the podcast. Today, I have the honor of sitting to chat with an old friend, Dr. Jesse Baker. And Dr. Baker holds a doctorate in environmental policy and design. He has committed his career to aid and development in developing nations. Dr. Baker is the founder of Frameworks International. Frameworks is a nonprofit organization which works in direct partnership with local community leaders, striving to achieve sustained and scalable outcomes at the grassroots level. Um, And I I just want to say that Dr. Baker's work is really committed to addressing inequities in uh, developing nations with respect to environmental resources and um, also with respect to uh, exploitation of such resources. And um, so welcome. Welcome, Dr. Baker. Thank you. That was a really good intro. <laughs> I appreciate that. I don't know that I, I like I should record that and reread it for myself when I have to do that. Yeah, you're, you're astounding. So thank you for um, you know, taking the time and agreeing to sit down with me um, to talk about some of the things that we'll be talking about today. Um, I have to share with my guests that, um, you know, Dr. Jesse Baker is a, um, a white male and he's going to share with us some of his passions with his work, uh, how he became motivated to do such work. And we're also going to dive into um, discuss some issues around white privilege. So um, it should really be interesting. Yeah. And I want to thank you for having me. Um, it's humbling. <laughs> and it is, it's truly, it really is an honor, you know, to, to, to be offered an, an opportunity to to have this kind of dialogue, you know, I, I imagine I'm going to learn a lot myself. So I appreciate that opportunity. Awesome. Thank you. So, um, so may I call you Jesse um, throughout? The I would interview? prefer that. I would okay. prefer that. Saran, thank you. Okay. Yeah, of course. Um, so Jesse, can you tell me and my listeners, can you explain to me how you became motivated to do the work that you do? Um, and maybe you can provide a little more in-depth background about so the mission of your organization that you founded. And um, yeah, we could see what, you know, what motivated you to do that. Yeah, um, you know, I, it's interesting. There's probably a lot of different things uh, that I could draw upon that I'm sure we'll touch on at, at different points here. But, you know, it's, um, I love travel. I love adventure, you know, and and when I started traveling, 
I mean, it was after I had had received internationally, I should say, I, it was after I had um, really been exposed to a lot of the kind of more academic uh, inquiries that I had had to injustice internationally, like I could just, you know, United Fruit Company in Guatemala or what have you. Um, <clears throat> and I wanted to make my travel relevant, you know, rather than just kind of be a backpacker that had a good mm -hmm. time. I wanted to do something positive. But I also had, you know, I come from from Oregon, uh, which has obviously been in the news a lot lately. And my dad is a he's a he's a logger, and mm -hmm. our entire, um, you know, our our financial, I guess, well being was dependent upon trees, natural resource, right? You know, mm -hmm. it's a that was the economy there. And when I grew up, it was a it was not good, and we grew up poor. That's what I was always told. Um, by friends and teachers and what have you. And we had, you know, canned food drive. People would come to our house and drop food off. And, um, you know, my parents had food stamps every once in a while. And I know there was welfare on, at various times. And mm -hmm. you're self-conscious that conscious of that stuff as a kid. And mm -hmm. I had really gotten involved in the environmental movement when I was in high school. Um, I, I don't really know exactly what, what pushed that, but uh, I had always read the paper front to back and somehow it just made sense to me. And, and I had learned the most, most of my exposure to environmentalism, if you will, came from my dad initially because his job depended on healthy forests, right? And at some point I saw that we were, you know, mills were being shut down in small towns around where I, I grew up in Eugene in Oregon. And it would, it really impact the communities but then we were shipping logs you know to japan and to other countries and i was like well that doesn't make any sense that's terrible forest management and i had that figured that out at like 15 i don't really know how but i did and you know so i started realizing that we were managing our our resources terribly and it was having an adverse impact on the communities that that i grew up around and the people i knew and you know everyone i knew was from blue collar families and um everything was was dependent upon the forest industry mm -hmm. so cut to uh you know going to college and i had a you know i had a professor that really kind of drew connections to uh you know immigration issues and and i mean this was this has been these have been issues for a long time right mm -hmm. and um she kind of allowed us or laid things out in such a way that, that we saw you know kind of uh unequal economic relationships between the United States and Latin America and how that would mm -hmm. drive immigration. And, and, you know, like I mentioned the United fruit company earlier. So then there's just all kinds of examples. And, and, mm -hmm. and I saw some parallels and I was like, Oh, wow, that's not totally different than where I grew up really poor management of natural resources that benefited wealthy people at the expense of people living, you know, kind of on the margins. Mm -hmm. Granted, <laughs> very much more extreme in Latin America than what I, you know, dealt with in, in Eugene, Oregon, but I could certainly yeah. see some parallels. And then I, when I finally did a study abroad program and I traveled, um, you know, I was like, oh, shoot, I yeah, we were poor, but we were, and I remember thinking this very clearly, we had, we were white people poor, right? Like, I still went to a good school. I got to play sports. You know, I, we, my parents did a pretty good job of putting good food on the table. I wasn't cold at night, mm -hmm. um, you know, and so I, I just started seeing a lot of contradictions. 
And yeah. um, that's really eye opening, isn't it? When you when you do travel for the first time to, um, you know, developing nations or places other than the US even yeah, um, in some rural areas, even um, you realize yeah. that what you thought was poor really wasn't all that bad. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, totally. <laughs> You know, and I know at some point we'll talk about the fact that I, uh, you know, I didn't graduate from co- from high school. I'm sorry, but mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> you know, I um, I just kind of started realizing that I actually had privilege, and I didn't mm-hmm. make. I don't think I made the connection of privilege per se in my head, but mm-hmm. you know, I realized that things were were, were very different for me. Um, even though we grew up quote unquote poor compared to, you know, people that I was actually seeing. And then I had also had some kind of, you know, academic background at this time. I mean, this is, I was midway through college at, at mm-hmm. this point, you know, so, um, you know, the injustice just, it, it clicked with me. And, and I'm sure some of that had to do with, uh, you know, different professors that I had had and, you know, but initially I, I didn't think of it so much in terms of like fighting for justice or equity. I just thought, oh, I'd like to make my traveling be not so self-absorbed and about mm-hmm. me. Yeah. Um, and then as I, you know, that was really kind of one of the, the, I guess, catalysts. I don't know if that's plural or not for catalyst. But, but, <laughs> but anyway, you know, that kind of pushed me in this particular direction. Um, where I started to see, you know, large companies exploiting natural resources that would pollute the environment and it would impact people who live near that kind of pollution. You know, we, I don't know if you were exposed to this in, when, in our grad program, but you call that environmental justice like mm-hmm. 15 years ago. That's what the term we were using, you know, yeah. and started seeing just the unfairness, if you will, of it. And, um, you know, my parents were were part of that whole 60s hippie movement and that was part of my upbringing and there's a you know my mom used to say things like always question authority always question authority mm-hmm. and that's, that's great sort of advice. A, yeah yeah i think so and my dad you know same thing um you know that there's there's a lot of negativity associated with that rugged individualism but there's also an independence uh an independent mindedness that that at least in my case in the area where i grew up in the time that i grew up i think things are very different right now but that said you know it's okay to stand up and and question what you're being told and you should do it you have Mm -hmm. an an obligation to do that you know so i just that's really kind of i think a, a summation of the just some of the basics that pushed me into this direction early on yeah, and I, I wanted to make use of, of of my education and my experiences. Wow, um, that's I mean, all of what you said is so interesting. Uh, especially, um, <laughs> you know, you said that in high school you were reading the paper front to back. Um, yeah, you know, did was that something that your parents really um, encouraged you to do, or is that something that was just innately interesting to you? I'd say probably a little bit of both. I mean, I was fortunate in, in that when I was growing up, well, we didn't have a television until I was like 11. Mm-hmm. Um, and then even then it was like three channels and, you know, it was fuzzy. Yeah. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think I don't think we had cable TV until I was probably like 14 or something. But, um, you know, we had the paper 
right? Mm -hmm. That's a privilege right there. A lot of people didn't get the paper delivered to their house, you know, and every mm -hmm. day. And my parents would have, they would speak to me like an adult, you know, so I wasn't like coddled child was, you know, here, play with these little toys and whatever, you know, I mean, I would have intellectual conversations with them mm -hmm. and, um, and their friends, you know, and so that I think was, was an important thing. I, I, <clears throat> somewhere along the line, I become exposed to this idea that our schools were not very uh, effective, our education, you know, and, and I had read an article somewhere that said, um, you know, that was talking about how much time is wasted in, in a class. And then I would go to my classes and I'd be like, yeah, you know, it'd take us 10 minutes to count roll. <laughs> we, you know, there'd be a lot of dumb, I shouldn't say dumb questions, but a lot of stuff where I'm like, we just went over this. Why are we talking about this still, you know, and then maybe a little bit of education. And then, you know, and, and I, I had become soured on my experience at, in, in school. And, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of things I think that impacted my, my, I guess, negative uh, perception of school mm -hmm. um, and just sort of the economic difficulty in the area that I was at. My parents, you know, they had a, they didn't have a great relationship and that made home life somewhat difficult. And I had three mm -hmm. younger brothers that were added complications to the, or, you know, the, I didn't mm -hmm. get the attention necessarily because I appeared fine um, mm -hmm. and I was, but uh, out of high school. So, you know, I mean, obviously not all was great. I dropped out of high school with a 1.3 GPA, right? And that's something clearly is off there. And um, <laughs> That's so you know, interesting. Just, so you never, yeah. you never graduated high school. Uh, you no. had a 1.3 GPA and you have, um, and your doctor, Jesse yeah. Baker. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. we'll talk more about that. Yeah, <laughs> very small sliver of the population that has that <laughs> that I guess background yeah. of of academic non achievements and achievements, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. um, you know, I just was down on school. I just was like, this isn't I don't know, rebel without a clue. I'm just now starting to kind of you know, within the last few years, I've backtracked and tried to figure out what happened there. You know, because I yeah. I had even my parents were like you know, so, you know, somehow we contributed and I'm like, no, 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 no. This was my decision. I made this whole thing, you know, and they're like, no, we had something and I wasn't hearing it. But now I'm like, obviously somewhere along the line, <laughs> someone dropped something, the ball, yeah. whether it's, you know, and I don't want to blame my parents, but you know, clearly there's something there. And then, you know, the school system, how did they, how does a smart guy who loves sports, you know, because that was the other thing I got to play sports. Uh, how how is he allowed to not finish school? You know, and but that's what happened. And and I think that kind of subconsciously reinforced the perspectives that I had that school was a waste. Public high school was a waste of time. I never had the idea that education was a waste of time. So I wasn't getting stimulated in school. So I read the paper front mm -hmm. to back. Right. Yeah. I had a few classes and I, and, and we'll probably talk about this. I had a couple of teachers I had really stuck out and mm -hmm. I learned a few very valuable lessons um, from some, some other teachers that, that yeah. I had exposure to. Um, but well, you yeah. had all the right ingredients, right? So you knew how to add yes. and then you knew how to read. <laughs> yeah. I mean, no, I mean, honestly, you know, and, then, yeah. and so, um, so if you know how to do those things, there's always an opportunity to catch up, you know, and, well, and also and, and I was encouraged to think critically. 
Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I was encouraged to question authority and I was encouraged to ask. So yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. and those are the things. And and I think there's a lot of school. It was just, it's like, it, you know, it's a, <laughs> I'm, gonna not, I'm not going to let my kids right? listen to this particular podcast. <laughs> right, right, right. But there are great so, schools, you know, and great yeah. teachers as well. And I know I had, and I can think of a few different instances that I had that really opened my eyes were impactful. I mean, my mm-hmm. third, my fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Trotman was the first you know, exposure I had to an African-American. And she taught us about, you know, slavery. She taught us history. She taught us mm-hmm. about, you know, Native Americans and, and the, uh, you know, the atrocities that have been, you know, committed, mm-hmm. right? You know, and so, um, I, you know, I, it's only within the last few years I've really kind of thought, wow, I, she's probably really a major influence on my life in the fourth grade, you know? Yeah. I wouldn't even begin to know how to get in touch with her now, but, you know, I'm thankful for that. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, and I guess you kind of hit upon this um, with respect to, um, you know, what you're talking about in, in some, in, in some way when you're talking about being able to matriculate <laughs> through your mm-hmm. education without ever having attained a high school diploma or a GED, um, you know, is white privilege something that you is real to you from your perspective and just based upon, you know, what you've explained in terms of your background and exposure to even Mrs. Trotman and um, some of the uh, inequities you've seen across um, internationally and even here. Is it, is it real? Yeah. Absolutely. It's not just real. It's blatant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, okay. and I think my, my first time I didn't know this was, you know, I'd never even considered the concept of white privilege per se, you know, but mm-hmm. I, I went to, uh, so yeah, I dropped out of high school with a 1.3 GPA. I had, mm-hmm. I had, you know, if I wanted to go back, like, obviously I'm not going to do that now, but if I had wanted to go back and like do it the right way, it would have taken a long time. Right. And, mm-hmm. and I didn't get a GED and I, I went to, um, I, I became a ski bum for a couple of years, moved to Bend, Oregon. And, uh, just, I don't know if you want me to say this kind of stuff, but smoked a lot of pot and skied a whole bunch and mm-hmm. whatever. I guess you could edit that out if we're trying to, no, you that's know, your but truth. it's the truth. No, and then, that's your right, truth. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. And then and then I was like, you know, I need to go to college. Uh, and, and that's the thing too. I, I guess I, yeah, this just hit me. When I dropped out of high school, everyone's like, dude, what are you doing? You're, you're throwing your life away. And I was like, no, I'm not. I'll go to college. I, how, where, how would I think that? Why would I think that way? Right. You know, mm-hmm. I'm like, that's some kind of white privilege right there to have that kind of confidence. Like, eh, I'll be fine. I know I got a one point. <laughs> anyway, so, yeah, I, I mean, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? I don't you know, think, like, I what? think most of us that are walking around like in high school, because, you know, just, you know, a lot of kids are stressed, you know, in high school trying to figure yeah, out what's yeah. next, how to do it. You know, they have a, oh my God, they got a B on, on the on their transcript. Yeah. They have a B and um, right. they need an A and they need a 4.79, you know, to be able to right. get somewhere right. special. Right, yeah, exactly. And you're just like skiing so, and smoking yeah. and like, oh, I'm going to get no there. No worries. That'll be good. <laughs> Don't worry about me, people. I'm good. Yeah. So uh, I walk up to, uh, I lit- this is like 1989 at this point, and I had, mm-hmm. had, tried to go to um i moved to seattle for a year and it was just wet and traffic and whatever beautiful city great people mm-hmm. but i moved so i moved back to bend and and then i i walked up to the admissions office at central oregon community college you know keep in mind there's no 
like internet. There's no information online or anything like that. So I walk in and I'm like, hey, uh, I'm ready to go to college, but I'm a high school dropout and I don't have a GED and I'm not getting one. So what do I have to do? Literally, that's probably almost verbatim exactly <laughs> what I said. And the woman behind the desk, you know, nobody else is in the office and she looks at me like, okay, you're nuts. And kind of just kind of looks around her desk, looks under a folder, like maybe there's a memo about that there or something. Anyway, she's like, I don't know, you know, so she's like, okay, cool. She gets up and she goes in, you know, into the hallway behind her. Maybe two minutes later, she comes back with this guy and, uh, he looks at me and he's like, so you're ready to go to college? And, and I'm like, yeah. And he literally gives me an up and down. He's like, okay, um, wait here a minute. So then they disappear for a few minutes and she comes back with a uh, Scantron. And she's like, all right, we're gonna let you take this test. Right then I took the test. Like I didn't have to schedule an appointment, come back later or whatever. So, <clears throat> okay, cool. So they give me the, you know, the exam booklet or whatever. I'm sure this is a much more difficult exam than a GED anyway, but um, I take the test. They grade it right then and they go, okay, you can, you can start, so you can register for class as a regular incoming student. And I remember I had two profound thoughts at that moment. One was like, wow, you know, that I don't, I didn't even go to half of my classes <laughs> in high school and I was able to pass that test like that. That's, you know, what does that say? But then I had the thought too, I was like, I remember thinking, I was like, what if I was a black kid, like the black version of me? Mm -hmm. And I was like, and I came in and, you know, said exactly the same thing, but you know, obviously my, la and, I, and I remember thinking too, like if my language was different, you know, I, I don't know what, Saran, I don't know what terms to use. Like at the time, the word that we used, and I know this is not cool, was Ebonics, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's how I, that, but that's what I knew. And I was like, what if a black kid, the black version of me came in, speaking Ebonics and said the exact same thing, what would have happened? They had been like, get out of here, go get your GED, you know, and come back and write, you know, and, and it really, like, I really remember thinking that's, that's crazy that this was so easy for me. I had like, I, I didn't, I thought for sure I would go in and they'd be like, okay, you have to schedule. First, I thought they're going to make me take the GED. That's why I said, and I'm not getting one. And I was going to have to schedule the time. And you know, I don't know if I was going to be able to register and all that stuff. It was so easy. And I was like, no, no. And that's when I really thought something is very different. Like, cause I knew at that moment and that's white privilege. Right. And, mm -hmm. um, so I had that that moment of really realizing that, but not knowing that it was, you know, that white privilege was a thing. And I'm still learning about white privilege, right? Yeah. You know, so that yeah. was kind of one of those in, in, in <clears throat> initial moments when I realized that there was something, you know, I don't want to say special, like wonderful, but like we get special <laughs> advantages, you know, and yeah. um Eddie Murphy actually did a thing a few years later on Saturday Night Live. Now that I think about it, he had a skit where he dressed himself up as a white person, like with makeup and a mustache and looked like, mm -hmm. and he would go around just that. kind of exploring <laughs> and they well, just take the newspaper. It's cool. Yeah, no, don't you have to pay for it. <laughs> you know, and yeah. that was exploring white privilege yeah. too at that time. And, mm -hmm. um, but I've got lots of white privilege stories that have to do with police where I should, should be in jail. And, I would you know, love to hear happened. maybe a couple and of all those. kinds of things. Yeah, maybe just share, you know, just share one or two that you feel, you know, stand all out. Right. I think that would so be So there really was, uh, when, when I lived in uh, 
I lived in Gunnison, Colorado. So mm-hmm. I, I went to college for, you know, one year at Central Oregon Community College. I did well. Mm-hmm. Transferred to a college called Western State College in Gunnison in, in the mountains in Colorado. So it's like 5,000 people live in this town. Mm-hmm. And um, this is, I'm probably like 28, 29 at this point. Maybe I'm 30. I don't remember. But it was snowing. It's January. Mm-hmm. And there's like eight to 10 inches of snow on the ground. It's snowing. There's some friends of mine. We go to the bar. You know, we close the bar down. So clearly we're intoxicated and we're walking home. I only live, my house is like four blocks away. And um, it's me and, you know, one friend of mine, Jonathan, and then two other women that we knew. And we're all good friends. So, you know, one of them lays down and she makes a snow angel. And then we're having like an innocent little snowball fight. And this cop pulls around the corner and um, he comes up to us and just starts harassing us. He's like, what are you doing? You're laying in the street making a snowman. I'm like, she's on the side. The streets are huge. It's two in the morning. There's no traffic. Why are you giving her a hard time? And then he's like, and pursuant to city code 375-B15, whatever. He's like, you know, <laughs> snowball fights and throwing a projectile. And I'm like, you're, we're in a snowstorm in the Rocky Mountains in wintertime at two in the morning. We're, have, we're friends having an innocent little snowball fight. And you're going to put the clamp down on us? F that, right? You know, and so my friends are like, oh, sorry, officer, sorry, officer. And I'm pissed. <clears throat> and so he gets in his car and drives away. So I pick up a snowball and I throw it at the car. Oh my god. He's like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and my friends are like, dude, what are you doing? You know, and I'm like, I'm pissed. Like, that's not this is this is BS, you know, I'm not gonna take this. And so he's he and he's flabbergasted. He's like, what? He stops his car and he gets out. And and I'm pissed. And so I put my hand, I'm like, I want you to arrest me for having a snowball fight during a snowstorm in the Rocky Mountains in a town I own a house in. Like, I pay taxes here. You're not doing this. And and he's like, are you serious right now? My friends are like, no, he's not serious. I'm like, yeah, I'm dead serious. I want you to, I want you to face the embarrassment of taking an adult in for blah, 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 right? And then he's like, do you want me to call my commanding officer? Yeah, I want you to call your commanding officer. All right, I'll do it. His commanding officer comes down. And he's like, what's going on? We explain it. And the the guy is like, oh, my God, can we all just go home and pretend this never happened? (laughs) I was like, I won. Yes, do it. Same thing. Like, that's a college town. You know, there's, there's some some black students. Like, what if one of them had done that? And and so, you know, they'd be in jail, in jail. Right. There's no way. And that's kind of one of the things that I'll do is I'll, 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 like, I'll think of to try and help myself understand white privilege is I'll, mm-hmm. like, I'll, I'll <clears throat> analyze an incident that I was a part of and I'll be like, okay, let's role play how that would play out if, if it was a black person, right? And usually I do it like the black version of me, just to try and make everything mm-hmm. the same, right? Yeah. Or... I'll put myself like George Floyd and I'll go, how would I have been treated in that situation? Right. You know, white guy walks into that store with a, maybe a fake counter or a counterfeit $20 bill. They're not going to call 911 on me. Yeah. There's no way they might not have even looked at it, you know? And so, and, and these kinds of things, I think have like, whenever I see something like that, I, I really try to put myself in this situation and, and go, how would it be different if I had encountered that? Mm-hmm. Or how would it be different if I had been black? Mm-hmm. And, <clears throat> you know, it, you know, I mean, I have other 
other examples, and I don't know if you want me to go too far into them, you yeah. know, but like I drove my car from California all the way to South Carolina, all over South Carolina and back with an expired California license plate. That was pulled over twice in South Carolina, never even hassled. You know, I'm like, oh, I'm screwed here. Oh, I guess I'm going home. You know, I mean, just yeah. all kinds of things like that. And that is really interesting, especially like when you just a few things stand out in what you've described. So um, the one thing that stood out is um, as you're talking about how uh, you, you know, walked into that community college and, you know, the woman returned with an opportunity for you to take the exam and, you know, you're a year into your college experience and this occurred. And then, but the other thing that you said was, um, uh, in a town that I own my home. And so, um, I, I I just, I, I just want to ask you about that. Like, um, home ownership, is that something that, um, seemed, um, like a hurdle to cross or, or to leap, or was it kind of one of those um, situations like you described, ah, I'll get there. Oh, I'll go buy a house. Oh yeah, it's time to buy a house. Or was it, <laughs> or was it, you know, was it like, because um, in some minority communities, those are real hurdles, uh, you yeah. know, home ownership. Yeah. So how did, what did that look like for you, um, given the trajectory you were on during that time when you acquired your home? Well, well that's a really good question. Um, you know, and I hadn't learned at that point. Well, I, when that incident happened, mm-hmm. I had learned about redlining. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I bought a house, I bought a house at 22 years old mm-hmm. uh, when I moved to that town. I just walked into the town. And you know, part of the reason I was able to do it um, it was a FHA program. So mm-hmm. first time home buyers program. Uh-huh. Uh, and <clears throat> my mom had just inherited a little bit of money. And I really honestly mean a little bit of money. Mm-hmm. And she was like, I will pay the down payment, which came to like $2,000, mm-hmm. I think maybe. Uh, and you know, and then I made the monthly payments, but um, the town, it's the town is called Gunnison in a, mm-hmm. you know, in the heart of the Rocky mountains. And it was, this is like 1990, I want to say. And it was, you know, I bought the house for Mm $40,000. That's a shit. And it was not a quote unquote nice house, but uh, it was available. And I bought Mm -hmm. a house. You're right. Mm -hmm. Like I owned a house at 22 years old, Mm -hmm. which is crazy, you know, and it was, yeah, it was, it was, we were just kind of streamlined through the process and they helped, they helped, (laughs) <laughs> they weren't putting up roadblocks to try and prevent us from buying the house. They were helping. Now, the woman that owned it really was a motivated seller, but I still had to qualify for the FHA program. We had to mm-hmm. qualify for the finances. I just moved into the town. I didn't have any money. I didn't have a real job, you know. I mean, you know, but they, you know, like, okay, well, if you, you know, put, you know, I mean, I was a bike mechanic at a mm-hmm. bike shop, you know. I mean, there, there's no, like, that's not a career. Well, it is mm-hmm. for some people, and I don't want to. I understand. Be little or shame that, but yeah, um, you know, it's not like something that you would think you can buy a house at making eight dollars an hour mm-hmm. <laughs> at twenty-two years old, right? You know, mm-hmm. and I was, and, and I don't want to say I really quote unquote took it for granted, but I didn't make the connection at that point in time that 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 was uh, a white, you know, that that was a privilege that I had been extended because mm-hmm. of my color, but 
you know, what I know now is again, if I were to substitute myself, all things being equal, if I was, you know, not white, I probably wouldn't have been able to have done that. Right. Yeah. You know, that's that's and, just and really interesting. Does, yeah. And it does provide you with a sense almost of entitlement, you know, and I think mm-hmm. that the, you know, me talking to that cop, you know, my point was like, you're not going to push me around. I own a home in this town. I pay mm-hmm. taxes. You mm-hmm. know? This is America. We're having a snowball fight. Who, who do you think you are? You right. Know? But yeah, there is, I, there's a reason I brought it up. You know, I own a home. I'm paying taxes because I guess that entitles me to have a snowball fight. Now, I, mm-hmm. I would think it doesn't matter if you own a home or pay taxes. You should right. still have a snowball fight with your <laughs> right. friends in the snowstorm, right. the Rocky Mountains during the winter, right? Mm-hmm. But, <laughs> you know, that's certainly an added layer of entitlement that people of color have a much more difficult time, um, you know, acquiring, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. yeah. So let me ask you. To this uh, day. To this day, they have a more difficult time, you know, so oh, oh, it's not for like sure. it's just a, a thing in the past, you know, which is kind of what we teach. You know, mm-hmm. Redlining, that happened in the 60s. Eh, they no, did. No. <laughs> but no, there's, no. there's it's that real. happening today, right? I'll share with you um, when my husband and I were house hunting at one point in, um, in Irvine. Um, our realtor uh, did not want us to be visible to the seller. Um, and he was very transparent with us <laughs> about why. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, it was, it was real. And then um, at one point um, we were in between, like we were in between um, a home purchase and we were needing to, you know, we didn't end up having to do it but we were thinking we might have to lease something temporarily while one home closed and we were moving into the other. Um, right. And so the gentleman who was um, the, uh, what do you call it? Property manager of this particular uh-huh. home uh, asked if we would be frying a lot of chicken. Swear Jesus. to God. <laughs> so um, frying a lot of chicken. And so, um, uh, you know, because the owners would be, you know, coming back from, um, they were out of the country when they came back, they didn't want a lot of fried foods, you know, in the home. And so, um, so this was, uh, over the phone. I said, I'm, I'm sorry, I'll call you right back. So I sent him a string of emails cause I wanted him to write it to me. <laughs> I just right. wanted him to yeah. write it to me yeah. and I never heard back from him. I was so furious um you know like good lord am i frying chicken i mean well first of all fried chicken is something that uh, americans do (laughs) yeah you know you know i i mean they do yeah colonel sanders is a white man (laughs) right (laughs) americans fry chicken but um why am i gonna be the one that's frying a lot of chicken what what, what do you mean by that you know so um anyhow so there was just you know there's it's a real (laughs) kind of situation i've never heard of being redlined for potential fried chicken you know but Uh, um yeah that was the first time i'd ever heard of anything like that but um anyhow but yeah no it's a it's a real phenomenon um so So how does that i know mm -hmm. like like that's that sticks with you right like to this day, like you're still bringing up, like that's just. Oh, there's so many things. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah I mean, obviously. I can share another story with you, and I, and, and I, I don't know if I've ever shared this. Um, 
with you. But anyhow, I, my husband and I um, were at home and um, our daughter who was, mm, see, she was a year, a little over a year old at that time. Uh, she had, she was born, she had colic. And then as she, you know, um, grew, she outgrew the colic, but she would have what was called uh, night terrors. So she would have a hard time going to sleep and um, she would cry a bit and you'd have to just kind of let her process it. Like there was nothing you could do. <laughs> you just had to let her have her moment. And so, um, so she had like a 10 minute little spell where she was crying. My husband was holding her and at our house on a Friday night, it was just all of us hanging out. Fortunately, my kids, uh, you know, they span ages, but they just all enjoyed spending time with us um, and having family nights. So we were in our bedroom and we were watching movies. My husband was sitting on like a, a love seat that was near the, the, the entry to the doorway, I mean, to the bedroom, holding uh-huh. the baby. And um, my son comes up stairs and walks into the bedroom. Now we had white carpet um, and a rule of the household was to remove your shoes, especially mm-hmm. on the white carpet. So um, anyhow, my son comes up and he says, oh, the police are here for a crying baby. And I'm like, oh, get out of here. You're crazy. <laughs> you know, so we're right. stop. Um, and kid you not, three officers walked into our bedroom with their shoes on. Now, my husband's holding the baby. He's over six feet tall. He's a big guy. And um, that could have all gone bad because he immediately jumped up. You know, this is his home. These strangers are walking in. He jumps up um, and the officers walked back out immediately. Um, You know, at that point, they could see what was going on. And then by the time, at this point, I'm, I'm... angry because this was the second time the police had been called on on us the first time um they came during the day and i was about to go take my uh my older daughter to register for middle school and i saw them we lived in a gated community on a cul-de-sac and it was very you know uncommon to see uh officers on our street and so they're walking up they're coming they're walking by my car and i'm kind of i'm watching this i'm like what's going on my son was out of school state at the time in college and I was nervous and my husband had just left for work. So I'm like, oh my gosh, they're here to tell me something bad, you know? So I come, you know, open the door. They asked me to step outside or would you prefer we come in? I said, I'll step outside because I didn't know what the nature of this visit was. So I step outside Mm -hmm. and they said, well, we had a call that um, you um, were locking your children out in the courtyard in the uh in your backyard at, at night after you know midnight and they would be banging on the door crying mommy let me in let me in <laughs> what <laughs> and we wow. had a call that it was happening right now now we've been here for about 10 15 minutes on the side of the house and we didn't hear anything um uh-huh. and so it was just settling <clears throat> in to me like and I, anyway that was the first incident um they didn't file a report they you know they knew it was BS and and they left, but this was the second time. So at this point I'm angry. My, I have tears streaming my face because I'm so angry. And by the time I stepped out of my bedroom into the hallway, 
the office were, officers were addressing my husband, um, you know, by title, you know, major and calling mm -hmm. me doctor. Um, and I, which, you know, wasn't necessary, but they were, they were doing their part to acknowledge that they understood. And, um, and right. so, uh, so anyway, we had a conversation and it turned out it was my very next door neighbor who had been calling the police on us. Um, and making things up. Making things up. And, and the thing about this is that um, if we had gotten the wrong officers, Right. Yeah. If my husband yeah. jumped up and they felt threatened, right. There's a few things that could happen. Yeah. Um, uh, there could have been gunfire. Mm -hmm. There ha could have been an arrest. You know, my my husband has Secret Service. Uh, he's got clearance that can't be jeopardized for his employment. Um, right. And also, my children could end up in like foster care or something you know, like right, you know you get right, getting child yeah. protective services involved on something that's not real you know so right. um there could be so many things that could have impacted our family and life as we know it today <laughs> you know what i right. mean um yeah all because yeah, someone lied on us yeah all because someone lied on us so yeah, what <clears throat> go ahead sorry yeah no so so to answer your question um you said you asked if those things stick with me and how do i do the, the 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 reality is Jesse that this is one or two examples of many instances right. throughout my life yeah. so it's um, one of the more recent ones where I'm like are you for real is this really still happening <laughs> you yeah. know um, uh, there's that but uh, it I mean tons of examples I could provide. You know, I went to school in the, in the San Fernando Valley and um, I was bused, you know, and so on, uh, on a couple of occasions, I got off the bus and the school was on the front of the sidewalk where the buses would pull up, said niggers go home. Um, and, you know, and it was all throughout the school, they graffitied the whole school with this. And so, um, interestingly, you know, I, I, we would read that, and just kind of go on with your day, like, uh, okay, uh, you know, um, you know, you, yeah. you're angry, you kind of have, you feel a way about it, but then, you know what? Now, what do we do? <laughs> you know, what, what do we do? Kind of have to go on. Yeah. Thank you for tuning in to the first of this three-part series with Dr. Jesse Baker. Join the conversation on the next episode as we continue the discussion on Black Lives Matters. Thank you for tuning in. Uh with her own strengths and unique characteristics. Simply because she is born, the universe benefits. Every woman is growing, learning, and evolving. Only positive seeds are sown here, no matter how flawed the soil. Phenomenal. Tune in Wednesday. Phenomenal Woman. Phenomenal Woman Wednesday podcast can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, and YouTube. You may also visit our website at www.pwwr365.com. Follow us on Instagram at pwwr365. Please be certain to rate, comment, and most importantly, subscribe. Take care.